So you have uh, probably opened up to the book of Philippians at this point, chapter one. It's a name I want to introduce to you if you don't already know it, probably not, most people don't. Gaius Domitius Corbulo, right? It's kind of a mouthful. Gaius Domitian Corbulo is a name that is lost to time unless you are a fan of military history. General Corbulo served during the first century AD under the Caesars, and while General Corbulo had many deeds and great deeds in his life, it is his death that certainly secures his legacy. Before his untimely death, uh, Corbulo served under who I call the crazy Caesar, and that's saying a lot if you know the Caesars, if you've ever read uh, in college Suetonius's 12 Caesars, uh, to call one of them the crazy Caesar is saying a lot, but it was, it was Nero. Nero was the Caesar credited for letting Rome burn to the ground. Nero is the Caesar that brought about the first full-blown massive persecution of the empire against the, the Christian church. Nero is the Caesar that almost drove the entire empire into the ground because of his mad lusts. Because of this, Nero was feared, but also there were many who wanted to remove Nero from power. On two occasions, this almost happened. Corbulo's son-in-law was involved with one of them. After the failed plot, Nero began to suspect and fear Corbulo himself. Now, during this time, there was a severe uprising in Judea, if you know anything about Bible history. Um, the, the late 60s and the year 70 is significant. Uh, a siege was laid against Jerusalem as a result of some of these uprisings, and finally in AD 70, Jerusalem was sieged, sacked, and destroyed, and all the Jews were scattered, never to return until Israel became a state again in the 1940s. So, AD 70 was a significant time. This uprising around that time was a good excuse for Nero to bring back, call back, one of his most famed and loved generals, Corbulo, at the time stationed in Lower Germany. When he was questioned by Nero, Corbulo uh, was unwilling to reveal any information that might implicate his son-in-law and harm his family in these attempts to remove Nero from power. And so Nero commanded Corbulo to take his own life. Out of love for his family, out of love for the empire, Corbulo loyally obeyed and drew out his sword. And with a single word, Corbulo forever guaranteed himself in history as the soldier's soldier as he exclaimed, Axios, and fell on his own sword. Axios, to be found worthy. We just read Paul talking about living a manner of life that is axios, that is worthy of the gospel. Now maybe not the extremes of it, but we do admire men and women like Corbulo who clearly live for things beyond themselves. It, it, it strikes us as something we aspire to as individuals. And likewise, when we see the reverse of it, it really causes strong distaste in us. So who of you in the reading of the news this week was not filled with such distaste, uh, whether you're watching the Olympics and the, what, that female Canadian hockey player who, when they lost to Team USA and they were giving them the silver medal, she immediately took the silver off because it wasn't a gold. Corbulo lived for a glory beyond himself and was found worthy. This hockey player lived for her own glory and is being found unworthy. Or when we hear about the tragic shootings in Florida, and we hear even more tragic that there were officers who could have done something about it, but did nothing instead. 
They held on to their own lives while other lives were let go. In such contrast to men like Corbulo, we view that as cowardice and find that as unworthy. So when we see and hear of men and women like a Corbulo who live for things beyond themselves, who understand there's a glory that far transcends them, it strikes us as this is what we ought to be. In our passage this morning, Paul commands in light of the glories of the gospel, in light of their partnership they have in the gospel, in light of the tremendous sacrifice he has made for the gospel, he asks the Philippians, only let your manner of life, literally the word citizenship, we get our word politics and polity and politeness, may your manner of life, your citizenship in the kingdom of God be oxios, worthy of the gospel. Now, Paul may have written to the Philippians, but he certainly is writing for us as well. This means that if you are a Christian, you have to ask yourself, or you have to wrestle with what Paul is commanding here, and it is a command. It's an it's a imperative verb. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Paul is commanding this of Christians, and so we have to wrestle with that. The best way to do that this morning is to ask three questions of our passage. Number one, what does it mean to be worthy? Number two, in light of that, can anyone truly be worthy? And number three, how can we be worthy? So what does it mean to be worthy? Can anyone truly be worthy? And, what does, and how can we become worthy? Let's look at them one at a time. Paul is very straightforward. He, when we ask the question, what does it mean to be worthy? Paul gives us four ways that explicitly define what it means to be worthy of the gospel. And they're right here in our passage. Being worthy of the gospel means four things. Uh, and, and you don't have to write all these down right now. I'll say them enough where you can get them. But it means standing together. It means striving together. It means changing together. It means suffering together. Standing together, striving together, changing together, suffering together. Now, now, notice two things immediately as we think about the four things that Paul says, almost that defines what it means to be worthy, two things become readily apparent. Number one, just by the, um, for you kind of grammar nerds, if you picked up on it, I use the verbal participle idea, ing, right? It's not that we just once took a stand and we're done taking a stand for the gospel. I didn't just change at one time, and, and I'm not, I didn't suffer once, but it's an ongoing thing. It's a process that is happening in my life. I'm standing, I'm striving, I'm changing, I'm suffering. It's an ongoing process. Secondly, this is something that's happening together. It's not just me by myself. I am standing together. I am striving together. We are changing together. We are suffering together. It is a process that's happening in community. Now, one of the, um, I think, unintended consequences of what is otherwise a very great emphasis in the last generation of the church, the emphasis of the kind of personal Bible study, one of the two of the unintended consequences has been this understanding that Christianity and maturity in the Christian faith means knowing more than anyone else in the room, right? So the most mature Christian happens to be the one that talks the most because they probably know the most and we think that's mature. Uh, and the other unintended consequence that I think is negative is that we believe that Christianity is merely personal. That it's about me and my personal growth, my journey, my, my development, my spiritual disciplines, and it, it, it's about me. Notice, though, when Paul is talking to the Philippians about what it means to be worthy of the gospel, he doesn't mention either of those. As a matter of fact, the way he lays it out, it's actually in contradiction to both those ideas. 
When Paul talks about being worthy of the gospel and he follows that with these four verbal ideas, notice those are a lifestyle, the way we live our lives. And it's not something that's just done by yourself, it's done together in community to to put a finer point on it. You know, it wasn't as if you were a Christian this time and you showed up in Macedonia, you didn't get out Yelp and go, okay, uh, how many good churches are there in Philippi? Oh, there's 10, I'm gonna check out this one, this one, it didn't happen that way. It was one church, and whether I liked them or not, I have to be with them, that's what it was. It wasn't just live out this lifestyle with kind of Christians you happen to get along with and are like, and you might go to this church, but your fellowship's someplace else. It was Philippians live out this lifestyle with this, in this particular context of this particular church and these particular people together. Now, obviously, if you read the New Testament, you know, especially the book of Romans, you can't get away from the fact that Christianity has a theological infrastructure. There's something to be known. There's doctrine, there's content, there's things to understand. That's clearly the case and that there is a personal component to it. That's why Christianity is so powerful. We're not an ambiguous them, there's a personal, relatable aspect to it. But sometimes in our current cultural trend, we, we view those two, like information, and it's all a, and personal, just a subjective personal experience, as the end goals, rather than the means to an end, as we see so often in the New Testament. So the things that I know are the things that shape and form the way that I live, right? It's not just information that I parse out here but doesn't affect the way I live. What I know, my knowing is for living and the personal transformation that takes place in my life and heart, according to 1 Corinthians 12, impacts the body of Christ that I'm a part of and it helps me play my role even better. It's not just me growing on my own, it's me in the context of the body of Christ. And those two work together back and forth. They're like a uh, kind of a feedback loop. As I know more, it transforms the way I live. As I live that out, it galvanizes and reinforces and refines what I actually know. As I'm personally changed, others are blessed around me, and as I'm part of the corporate expression of that faith, it continues to refine my own personal understanding of it. Right, so it's never either or, it's always and also. And we see that beautifully in Paul's first two kind of verbal ideas, standing together. So be worthy of the gospel, standing together. If you have an ESV, it says standing firm in one spirit. Now th these two first verbs are very powerful mental images. They would've been very evocative to the original hearers. Standing firm was a military term. It described a kind of posture that there were soldiers who would not give ground. They shared a common purpose, which is why Paul says in one spirit, and that common purpose was not to give the ground that they were commanded to hold. You hold the hill, you don't give an inch. You stand your ground and you do it together. It's gonna require all of you. You all have to stand it. Now, so evocative is this word that medical science, when they made discoveries of how we could help the human body not compromise its health, actually used this word to describe a whole, a whole a class of medications that chances are in this flu season or allergy season, you've all been using in and out. It's called an antihistamine. That's right. 
Benadryl, Allegra, all these medicines are built to design so that your body does not compromise, that your immune system does not give a ground to the affecting bacteria or virus. They're using the exact same picture and word here to stand against. So the next time you take a Benadryl, ask, am I compromising the gospel? Am I giving ground? And just a, a trigger to make you think about that. But that's what they wanted to do. This was such a strong image in ancient culture that medical researchers wanted to capitalize on how powerful their medications are. They'll stand against, and you will not be compromised in your immune system. And they call it antihistamine, a whole class of those. So here they are standing together, and this is, like I said, a defensive posture. But then Paul wants to realize that being worthy of the gospel is not just merely playing defense. There is an offensive aspect of it that where you're actually taking ground. And so he uses another very provocative word that we see here, striving together. It again comes from a word we're very familiar with, or one of our words comes from this, athletic. Athleo, the original Greek athleo is where we get the term athletic. And in the text, when Paul puts the preposition soon with athleo, he's saying, be athletic together, compete together, strive together. Specifically, it was, again, it was overlaid with a lot of military connotations, particularly of gladiatorial fights. Now, if you have a, uh, like a, a NLT, a New Living Translation Bible, the translators wanted to maintain that idea, so it's translated in the NLT, fighting together. That's the idea. And the idea behind it would be a ring of gladiators. Um, I can't help but think of Russell Crowe from the movie The Gladiator, right? Remember when they all got into a circle together so that a 360-degree defensive, offensive posture to fight against the wild beasts or the oncoming chariots. And the idea being that every single gladiator had to play their role because if any one of them backed out, the flank, the left and right flanks would be let down and you would have a weakness. And so the only way you gain the ground against these beasts or these chariots, these machines, is you fight together aggressively, taking the ground. And so Paul says he wants you to be worthy of the gospel, standing together. You do not compromise. So you don't compromise, and you strive together. You're taking the ground together. You're working as a team, as athletes or gladiators, fighting against wild beasts or these chariots. So standing together is the defensive posture. Striving together was kind of the offensive posture. Both of them, notice, are modified by the phrase in verse 27. Okay, I'm trying to find it without my glasses. I'm just, what am I doing here? Okay. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Both of these verbs modify the phrase faith of the gospel. So what are we not supposed to compromise? What are we supposed to take ground for? The faith of the gospel, that phrase is expressing the content, the commands, the principles, the stuff, the, the theological doctrine, the way we live of the gospel. Faith is referring to all that is accompanied in the Christian faith, the content as well as the conduct. And we don't compromise. So if the culture compromises on issues that the Bible makes a stand on, we don't give that ground. As a matter of fact, not only do we not give the ground, we try and do what we can to take the ground back. 
So when the culture compromises on, on sexuality and gender roles or whatever it is, we don't acquiesce, we don't, we don't give the ground, but we also don't be jerks about it, we, we, don't be, we don't be arrogant about it. We double down on what the Bible teaches and we actually start to take ground back and start talking about what it means, what masculinity means and femininity means, what the Bible teaches and how the Bible teaches on these things so relevantly and powerfully. The gospel, the culture compromises on integrity. We don't give ground. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean we do it. So when your partner fudges on their expense report, because no one's gonna know, you don't fudge on your expense report. When your friends speak ill of their spouse because that's just what they're supposed to do, all the ball and chain or whatever, you don't do that. You give honor and esteem to your spouse. You don't compromise, you take ground back. You show them how a godly man loves his wife and children. You show the world how a godly woman respects her husband and loves her children. You don't compromise, in fact, you take ground back. That's what the faith of the gospel is. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 12, verses one through two. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then here we go, it's a standing together. Do not be conformed to this world. This is what you're not gonna do, but strive together. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So these first two ideas are really important in light of the fact that the Philippian church, like any church, is gonna face opposition. They're gonna have internal struggles. For them to live lives worthy of the gospel, it's necessary that they stand and strive for that gospel. And and as they stand and as they strive together, they are being changed. They are changing together. Look at verse 28. Let me, let me just read from verse 27 so we get the flow of this very odd ending of verse 28. So only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So, so this, this is a clear sign to them. What's the this in that phrase referring to, right? We always have to ask these kinds of questions when we see pronouns and things. What is it referring to, the this in the phrase, this is a clear sign, refers to immediately what Paul just got through talking about. When you are standing and striving together like this for the gospel, <laughs> when you're not willing to compromise, as a matter of fact, not only are you not gonna compromise, you're gonna start taking ground back. You're, you're not gonna be intimidated by anybody. This does not mark people who are, are, are milk toast and wishy-washy. This is a strong people. When the world sees these realities at work in you, Paul is saying, this is a sign that their lifestyle is bankrupt. Let me explain that a little bit more. 
Now, what Paul doesn't say is how this happens, so I, I think we, I want to help us understand how is this a sign of their bankruptcy, and it's tied back into what we learned last week. It, when the Philippians, or when Christians embrace Paul's life motto that we learned last week, which is Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and die is gain, the idea is that if you grasp that Christ is life, so much so that even death itself looks like gain, that, that kind of person, that kind of community, they can't be intimidated by anyone or swayed by anything. One commentator said it was like, they wrote it in a kind of an unusual way, that these kind of people belong to the future. And I think what he meant is, when you have this mentality that we studied last week, that Christ is life, and so much so that death is gain, these are the kind of people that own the future with circumstances and everything else with a certainty that people who are living by, by fate or just by their circumstances can never understand. So in other words, when people see a community of people or just you living a radically Christ-centered kind of lifestyle that, that makes it hard for circumstances to knock you down, that regardless of whatever it is, your career, your dreams, your aspirations, that, that, that they may bring difficulty to your life, but it doesn't knock you down, it doesn't take you out. It, from their perspective, it might, almost makes you seem impervious to circumstances, because your joy can't be crushed, because your joy is not defined by your circumstances, it's defined by your definition of life, which is Christ. And they realize that it's that same mentality that also makes you able to stand up against cultural pressure and peer pressure or cultural pressure. You're not the kind of person that buckles. You have your convictions and you live them out. When they see these realities, people look at their own lifestyle and say, I don't have what I need to be like that. What's guiding me doesn't compare. Whatever philosophy that's driving my life seems futile compared to this person. As I watch circumstances come against them and they, they're resilient, they keep some kind of joy. As I see them making a stand, not arrogantly, not being jerks about it, but, but actually challenging the way we live here, I realize I don't have that. They realize, Paul calls it their destruction, because Paul's just a dramatic guy. But people are realizing what I've got is bankrupt. It doesn't compare to what's happening here, what I'm seeing in this individual. Friends, nothing's more attractive about the gospel than when people can see a confident, collected group of people who whether through circumstance or opposition can keep their cool and say, I've got my joy, Christ is still king, he's life. That's what Paul is, I think he's saying, that when they see this, this is a sign of their destruction, their lives are bankrupt, but it not only shows the bankruptcy of life without God, it also shows how that group of people are being saved. Now Paul's using salvation here, I think the same way he's using it in verse 19, you remember when we looked at that, as being changed, being saved. When you're standing together, when you're striving together in this amazing community, it shows you're being changed together. So being worthy of the gospel means you're, that you're standing together and you're striving together. As a result of that, you're being saved, you're being changed together. But as a result of all that, you're also going to suffer together. Because you can't make this kind of stand in our culture and not suffer, can you? 
There may have been a time that the Christian value system was the accepted norm. I don't have to tell you, that time is long gone, and it's not going to come back. But that's okay. That's not what we're about. We're not about blending with the, the majority culture. We're about creating a counter culture. After all, as Paul says, we are a colony that are just here. We're not from this kingdom. Remember the whole concept of citizenship. You are citizens of another kingdom. You're just like an outpost here. But that's going to necessarily cause suffering. And we see it right there in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Because you're making these stands, you're taking this ground, you're being changed, you're exposing the, 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 the bankruptcy of a, of, a, of a life without God, that's gonna inevitably bring suffering to you because of the name of Christ and because you're like me, Paul says, you're engaged in the same conflict. I may be in jail right now, you guys aren't, but we're still involved in the same conflict. What is that conflict? Being a citizen of a different kingdom, being an ambassador like Paul, an ambassador to the world, saying that there is another emperor, a better emperor than Nero, but like Nero, but much so much more powerful that this emperor has the right over life and death, and he can ask his servants for their lives at any times at any time. That's going to cause conflict. Now the reality is very few people are like General Cor Corbulo, it's a name I just can't quite get, that who would willingly give their life when Nero, who probably was an enemy of Corbulo, demanded his life, his response simply was to be found worthy axios. Well, now we have an understanding of what Paul has in mind when he says to be worthy of the gospel. So the question we have to now ask ourselves, if, okay, if we now understand what does it mean to be worthy, is anyone truly worthy? Because that's a pretty high standard. Were the Philippians worthy? That's kind of hard to say. Yeah, I know in our introduction we said that the Philippians were a gospel-growing church. They were bearing fruit. There was good things happening. But that doesn't mean there wasn't room to grow. That doesn't mean they were perfect by a long shot. Were the Philippians worthy? Why else would Paul write to them about selfish ambition and conceit and grumbling unless that might have been something that was going on within the church? Why else would Paul talk about, and probably one of, the, right, one of the greatest passages on humility, unless they lacked it. We know, at least in chapter four, at least two women, Iodia and Syncthety, could not get along. They were fighting against each other, and Paul considered them partners in the gospel, mature Christians, that they couldn't get along. They probably said something like, well, I love that person, I just don't like them. Were they worthy? I'm not sure. Are you worthy? Are we worthy? Do we ever compromise the gospel? Do we ever compromise in, in thought, word, or action? Safe to say we do. Do we consistently live as citizens of that kingdom, the kingdom of God? Probably not. Is there someone in this church you don't get along with? Is there somebody that you love, but you don't like? 
Maybe you didn't like what they said at Bible study, so you disagree, but now there's too much pride to say, I've been exposed for the pride I take in my knowledge, and this person just exposed that, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ignore them. I'll just sit on a different side of the church. Are we worthy? One of the difficulties of, of a passage like this, of Philippians 1, 27 to 30, is that they can typically feed into our moral instincts rather than help us understand the gospel better. Right? So what I mean by that is, um, there's a couple responses you could have hearing this passage. You might hear this passage and feel your sense of conscience stoked, and, and, and you feel in, you're enticed to step up your moral game so you can be worthy of the gospel, right? Now, other people, though, they'll hear this passage, and they don't get pumped to try harder at all. In fact, the opposite happens. They feel even more defeated because they know they're not worthy, and they can't match up. So hearing a passage like this makes them feel like more of a failure. Or, if you're like many in our culture, you might feel it's wrong to impose your standard on others. So you hear a passage like this, and you might be tempted, if not quite outright, to reject it, because the problem is having a standard of worth that we use to judge others by. Now, all three of those responses are complete, I mean, if you think about it, they're completely understandable, but all three of them are wrong because it doesn't help us understand the gospel. So, ramping up your moral game is good. Recognizing where you fall short and committing to change is better than not. But if that's not driven by repentance and faith and a love for Christ, that's only gonna fuel your own sense of self-worth. So you're going to feel worthy of other people's respect and admiration for being a good Christian, but you're not gonna be worthy of the gospel. Because here's what's gonna happen, because when someone doesn't value your worth as a good Christian as much as you value it, guess what happens? You get defensive and you get angry at that person because it's still about you and not Jesus Christ and what he has done, right? Others hear this passage and they feel defeated because they've tried to be worthy and they know they can't, so why bother? So the only difference between these people and the first group of people is they've learned something that the first group hasn't learned yet. You can't do it. And so they hear this passage and say, see, this is why I'm, just, I'm such a bad Christian, and they give up. But like the first group, it's still about you, what you're doing or not doing. So on the surface, they seem completely like polar opposites. Some people hear this and go, I'm gonna ramp it up. Other people hear it and go, I give up. But at the heart of it, it's the same reaction because it's about what I'm doing. Now some people hear a passage like this and they say we shouldn't have standards on whether or not people should be considered worthy at all. They might feel that this is the problem with Christianity, having these standards. We should just let everyone be whatever they are. Because when you have standards, you are imposing your morality on other people, and we, we, you know, in our enlightened culture, that's wrong. The reality is you simply can't get around a standard. So people who hear this passage and feel that, they get upset at Christianity simply because Christianity has failed to meet the standard they have set up, which is to not have any standard which is a standard. So you can't even get out of the gate. 
Right, so, so what do we do if the reality is we can't ignore the standard of being worthy, nor can we ramp our morality up to meet it, nor can we just give up, what do we do? Because Paul is clearly commanding this, but we just realize that either option, we're kind of hosed. So the last question, how then can we become worthy? Two phrases in our text give us the clue. It's the end of verse 28 and the beginning of verse 29. And that from God. So let me back it up. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, your being changed, and that from God, for it has been granted to you. Stop there. That from God. That phrase there is referring back to verse 28, our being saved, our ability to fearlessly embrace a radically Christ-centered lifestyle, to strive together, to stand together, ultimately to be worthy of the gospel is from God. See, our worthiness is not inherent inside of us, it has to come from outside of us. And so the first response in asking, well then how do we become worthy, is recognizing it's not inside of you. So it's not looking at to ramp up your moral game or, or match the standard. It, it is not inside of you, it's outside of you. And that's to recognize what Paul says, that it has been bestowed upon you, verse 29a, the first part of it, part of it, it has been granted to you. That word granted is the word that we often translate as gifts often used in spiritual gifts, charisma. This is a charisma. What is the this, what is the it? He's referring to everything that followed before. It all is a gift granted to you. It is gifted to you. Your worthiness is a gift. It's not something you earn or merit. It's not a standard you keep. It's something that's gifted to you. Paul would write in Romans chapter three, verse 21 to 23, but now the righteousness of God Boy, that, that phrase, righteousness of God, he's not necessarily referring to the righteousness that God inherently has, the righteousness of God. He's talking about the right living, the, the, the way of being worthy that comes from God. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's not you living up to a standard. The righteousness of God, the right living, the axios, the diokusune, that, that being right with God, living this way, is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have been found unworthy. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We become worthy because Christ is worthy. Christ is our worthiness. A.W. Tozer said, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. That's why Christ is our life. That's why death can be gained because it's not about us. So it's not about ramping up your moral gain. It's, it's not about meeting some standard. But at the same time, it's also not, not about that. So we don't want to hear this and say, well, Christ is my worthiness, so forget it. I don't have to stand with you. I don't have to fight with you. I can fight against you. You know, that's not it. Paul is saying is until you understand this is your worthiness, 
Then, only then, do you know what you're standing for. This message is too good to compromise. Only when you understand your worthiness is through Christ can you strive together because you want other people to understand and flourish this. And this changes you. You want to change into this and you're willing to suffer for this because it's worth suffering for. It's when you understand that, hey, my worthiness comes outside of me and has been given to me freely, that's when you have the engine, the fuel to stand, to strive, to change and suffer together. You see, as, as admirable as uh, General Corbulo's sacrifice was, it was unfortunately in vain. Both Nero and his son-in-law committed suicide later that same year. See, ultimately, the empire and the emperor that Corbulo wanted to be worthy of was not worthy of him. But you see, in the gospel, we have an emperor that does the exact opposite. Our emperor, he doesn't ask us uh, to us to take our lives. He gives his infinitely worthy life for people who are unworthy entirely. And, and his giving life is not a matter of just a show of affection or loyalty. In his giving life, it actually makes us axios. It actually finds us worthy. But it's only in Christ. May Jesus be your axios. Let's pray. Father, help us to make Jesus our worthiness real. Father, we so often want to live up to the gospel and we fail, but let us not, 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 let us not deflate us. Let us re, let, remind us that we can never do this apart from your enabling. Unless Christ is life, we will never understand how to have life. Forgive us for being so easily distracted by the shadow glories of this world that make us think we can have life in other things. Father, we are human beings and we are prone to these errors. We are prone to be impressed by things that are unimpressive. Help us, Father, not to be distracted from the most valuable by the things that are so useless and worthless so that ultimately in the end we can have our worth in Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.